Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. Easier. This is episode 144, How to Make Your Teaching More Inclusive. As professors, we are here to help our students learn, and our students come from a wide range of backgrounds in terms of their schooling, home life, the life and academic skills they've developed, their worldviews, socioeconomic status, and so much more. Our job as teachers is not just to make students who remind us of ourselves succeed, it's to help all of our students succeed. This means as teachers, as professors, we have to be aware of our students' differences and remind our students they belong in our classes. Our students are there. By definition, they belong. Remind your students of their value as people does not hinge on their grades. It does not hinge on their tests or on their papers. Our students are so much more than walking and breathing GPAs. Now, teaching inclusively means we focus on teaching methods that apply to all courses. Teaching inclusively doesn't necessarily refer to course content, but that said, Adam and I strongly encourage you to have guest speakers from a variety of backgrounds if you're able to have that. We also encourage building structure into your courses that can be really easily explained and easily understood by your students. This includes having the same due days for assignments. For example, I like to have my due days typically Friday end of day so that my students can get the weekend. But if they need an extension, I can always be flexible with them. But just building that consistency in from the get-go gives students a way to understand how the course is structured and that reduces stress a really long way and that helps them engage with your class. Now, there are three key principles of effective teaching, and the first one is that inclusive teaching is a mindset. By asking yourself the very important universal design question, who is being left out if I teach this way? You force yourself to think of students who might struggle and ways to help them keep up with their peers. Now, a lot of people think, oh, universal design, that's about disability. And yes, it is. If you've got a hard of hearing student, then you need to make sure you've got captions on your videos. You know, if you've got a student who is blind, then nothing you do can really depend on what color it is, because that's not going to help the blind student. But in the same way, if you've got a student who is a second language learner, how are they going to get through your class if they think in Japanese or if they think in Spanish and you are consistently holding to just English? What are they supposed to do? And this view of who's being left out if I teach this way is the opposite of sink or swim. Being considerate of your students is the equivalent of giving them a kickboard in the pool. It's a way to navigate new waters in a safe manner. Principle is the more structure in your class, the better that is for all students. Uh, the example I gave was keeping the same due days for all assignments because that consistency lets students know, okay, here's when my reflection is due. Here's when a rough draft is due and they don't have to worry is one due on Monday the other due on Thursday that consistency is built in and that helps students know okay Friday's coming up I got to make sure that I've got this reflection ready or I got to make sure I've got my outline ready to submit 
And then the third principle is just the inverse of the second one. Too little structure leaves too many students behind. Now I know that many of us as professors have had the professor who just walked in with no notes and started freewheeling and we struggled to catch up and raced to try to write down everything they said because it had nothing to do with the readings and it had nothing to do with anything else we had prepared for the course. And that style of teaching is about as uninclusive as you can get. It's basically saying, ha ha, you have to listen to me because I'm the professor, so I'm going to play games with your mind. And I'm going to make it really, really hard for you to learn because that's rigor. And we've talked about rigor before, and I won't go into too much detail here, but stressing your students out is not the same thing as rigor. So don't walk around and say, oh, we're going to have this is due on Monday, but then next week it'll probably be due on Thursday and the week after that. And those tests those test days are approximate, you know, I might want to throw in an extra lecture, not telling students what they're going to be learning in each class. Like if you have a syllabus that just says, come to class, and you're not telling what the lectures are, that's too little structure. You've got to give your students that structure so that they know what to expect, so that they won't stress out and go, God, I hate Professor Johnson. I hate them so much. Now, too little structure is not the same as flexible structure. You can build in flexibility by telling your students, hey, if you need an extension, talk to me and I'll grant you an extension or I'll work with you. You know, it's also saying sometimes you need that flexibility even on your on your test dates. Sometimes some material takes a little longer to click or to get through than others. And so you want to build in the ability to say, OK, we're going to take that extra day or two. Mm -hmm. But teaching inclusively means you're including your students, you're treating them as equals, you're treating them as partners. And when Adam mentioned the freewheeling professor who had who had no notes and just spoke off the top of their head, I immediately thought of someone I TA for in graduate school. And one of and one of the ways they taught was exactly that way. And it taught me I never wanted to do that. And so whenever I teach, I not only use slides i post them on from online for my students to be able to see and to print and to write on and i make them available for my students because that to me is teaching more inclusively it's giving them access to the material we're going to cover and giving it to them in a timely fashion now there are five ways of interacting with students inclusively and the first one is tough for many of us get comfortable with periods of silence we ask a question and the class falls silent. And there is always a temptation to fill the void with our voices. Don't do that. Many of your students, especially the introverts, are mulling what you said. They are thinking about what you said. They are not ready to answer yet. They are considering their different possible options, their different possible answers. Let them have the time to think it over before you demand answers. Allow a period of silence. Allow time for students to think, to make notes, to ruminate, to consider. And if you can, give them a chance to talk with each other about it. That'll fill the silence, but that'll also make progress. So like on Zoom, breakout rooms are fantastic for this. If you're in person, say, get in your groups and talk about this question. We'll come back in three minutes. Okay, but allow there to be time where you are not talking. Because the more you talk, the less included they feel. And the more you talk, the more they have to process, which means the longer it's going to be silent because there's more information for our students to mull over. 
So the second way of interacting with students inclusively is adding structure to group discussions. Assign your students roles, but also rotate the roles so that the same students aren't doing the same thing each time they get into groups. This is really similar advice to what we suggest in study groups that whoever's the note taker one week watches the clock the next and makes sure people are on task the following time. For your assignments, make a clear rubric and or a video that you post to the learning management system explaining the expectations for the assignment and the point breakdown. Show your students what's really important and how they can succeed. For example, those rubrics, make them public. Put them in an assignment guideline and tell them you go on this place on Blackboard or this place on Canvas and that's where it will tell you exactly step by step how to do the assignment. Structure is a good thing and scaffolding is a good thing and we need to stop seeing it as hand-holding. It's not. It's simply being clear about what we want students to do. Last I checked, most colleges didn't offer a course in mind reading, so we should not be expecting our students to read our minds for our course expectations or our, or our class expectations or our assignment expectations. We should be writing them down and making them very, very obvious. Now, the third thing is to allow anonymous participation or more clearly, written participation. So on Zoom, you can use the chat function. You can allow students to privately email their questions or comments or to meet privately. You can use Socrative to do a poll of the class and say, all right, what question have I not answered yet? And then they can put in their question and you don't have to reveal who asked it. You can just say, okay, I've got a good one here. You know, what is, what is conflict theory? All right, let's talk about that. If you're in person, allow them to write their questions on a piece of paper and address them without naming any names. Anonymity makes things so much safer for students because then, I'm sorry, but a lot of our students have bad memories of teachers calling them up on the carpet for getting something wrong, getting lectured in front of the class for a grade they got, even though that's technically a violation of privacy laws, not in K-12. In K-12, teachers can do that. So try not to put your students on the spot, and one of the best ways is to allow anonymous participation instead of demanding that they raise their hand and say their question give them a, say i'm going to give everybody three minutes to write down their question write it down on a piece of paper and pass it to the front or here is a google form put in your question and then you don't even have to collect identifying information you can just say i'm putting up a google form go here fill out this form it'll take you you know 30 seconds and then i will look at the questions and see what we've got i use that a lot Fight against imposter syndrome and the fixed mindset, because both of these approaches hinder student learning. Teach your students the value of adding the word yet. The idea of I'm not a good writer yet, but with enough practice, I will be. I'm not good at math yet, but with enough practice, I'm going to be proficient at it. That word yet adds so much compassion and so much patience, and it goes such a long way towards helping students learn. You know, you're making me think of a TV show that I watched back when I was a kid in the 80s called Fame. And Fame is set at the uh, New York School for the Performing Arts. And it's a high school. It's a real high school. And there's a point where one of the dancers, he auditions for a Broadway show. And he comes back crushed. And his teacher asks him what happened. And he said, they said I wasn't good enough yet. And she said, baby, they said yet. And he was only focusing on the first part. You know, I'm not good enough. But the word yet is such a wonderful word because it opens so many doors where the student can say, okay, right now, I don't know what I'm doing. 
On the other hand, this is my first week in this class. That's normal. Normalize that too. Fighting against imposter syndrome also means normalizing mistakes. It means normalizing confusion. We have done, you know, normalize these things that they're afraid of. Normalize making mistakes. Normalize confusion. Let them know. I mean, we have episodes on this. We have an episode on why confusion does not mean you're not learning. It's actually just the opposite. But so many of them have been conditioned to believe if I don't get the right answer immediately, then I'm stupid. Okay? And that's part of imposter syndrome, too. That's part of the fixed mindset, too. Finally, the fifth item on this list is connect with students personally. Learn their names, learn their pronouns, find out facts about their lives. You know, you'll know that this student is a Raiders fan. You'll know that that student loves to cook. You'll know that that student raises um, foster kittens, right? Find out something about each student where you can connect with them personally and acknowledge their tough times. If they, like right now during COVID, people are dying. You know, I've had a lot of students who have had uncles or aunts or cousins or grandparents die. Several students have lost a mother or a father. Acknowledge the tough times. Allow them to be human beings. And share that about yourself, too. Like for me, I'm a chronic pain patient. And so I tell my students up front and in my syllabus, if I'm in a bad mood, it is very likely I'm in pain and it has nothing to do with you. Assume it's not you. And then there will be days when I come to class and I will alert the students. Today is a really bad pain day. The barometer is all over the place. My ankles and knees are killing me. If I snap at you, it's totally not you. Okay? And that helps them see me as a human being. It also helps me remember that they're human beings as well, not just learning machines. We also have some ideas for inclusive course design. And these include designing courses in which you as the professor speak less. We've talked a lot about not being the sage on a stage, and this is it. Treat your students as partners. Don't dominate the conversation as much as you can. Pre-recorded lectures can really go a long way with this because we can talk for maybe 15 or 20 minutes and cover all the relevant points we want to cover, and that frees up, say, 30 minutes in a 50-minute class. It gives students a chance to ask questions, to get clarification to bounce ideas off of you if you give them that time and that space to actually answer and to mull things over. Get away from a testing mindset, okay? This means don't create your course with one paper and three exams, each of which is worth 25% of the grade. You're setting your students up to fail by doing that or to cheat or both. Give them lots of low stakes quizzes and lots of low stakes assignments. And yes, we mean lots. And I've had people say, well, what about my grading? Well, if you use a rubric, grading becomes very easy. And if you're giving them quizzes, give them online. Don't give them in class. Don't, don't chain yourself to the Scantron. Give them a quiz online. You know, have them go and take a low stakes quiz at the beginning of class so that you know what they caught from the reading and what they didn't get. And that allows students to build and evaluate their knowledge regularly instead of sitting there tense about, oh God, the midterm. I don't give midterms, and my finals are optional. Students can take them if they want to. My, my quizzes, they have to pass three of the five that I make available if they want to. Don't make your class centered on quizzing and testing. Make it centered on explaining and demonstrating. And yes, even if it's a class that is heavy on things that you would normally quiz on, like if you're a math teacher and you're used to giving lots and lots of tests and lots and lots of exams, then make them low stakes. Make them worth like 1% or 2% of the grade instead of 20 or 30% of the grade. And find other ways for students to demonstrate that, yes, they actually do know how to do the quadratic equation and what it's for. 
I typically don't weigh any of my tests more than 15% in a class, usually down to 10 if I can help it. Just depends on how the math from other assignments works out, but I don't want my students freaking out over how much a test is worth because I don't think it's fair that a test that's completely out of their control, they don't write the questions, that that's what's going to torpedo their grade. The stuff that they have more control over, their participation, their assignments, their papers, those I do weigh more heavily, but I also scaffold because they have more time and that time also affords them a little bit more responsibility over the assignment for completing it well. Now, for those of us who still write questions uh, for quizzes and tests, use typical test questions on your quizzes. Give students a chance to practice for your tests and changing up question types does them no good. If your midterm is gonna include some writing components, then give them a writing question on your quizzes. Don't test them or quiz them in one way and then test them in another because you're going to miss something that they know and they're going to miss something that they know because the testing method wasn't consistent and they weren't able to prepare adequately for one or both of them. One way that I've also read to deal with something like that is on every quiz and on every test, leave an open question at the end or a blank space on the paper quiz. Say, tell me the things that you expected me to test you on that I didn't test you. Explain the things that I didn't test you on that I should have tested you on. And that allows them to show what they know that wasn't encompassed in the quiz or the test. Because our quizzes and tests are never going to be comprehensive, no matter how much we think they are. There's always going to be something that we didn't put on the quiz that they studied really hard. So telling them, let me know, and then making that like an extra five points or something. Okay, give them an additional five points on the quiz. Make that the extra credit. Tell me what you know that I didn't quiz you on, that I didn't test you on. A lot of students really like that because then it allows them to demonstrate, this is what I know. You just didn't test me on it, Dr. Stanford. Okay, now I know to test people on it. But I also know what you know, which is the point of an exam, right, is to demonstrate that they understand what we're doing. Another thing to do is make your assessments available before and after classes so that you're not just using class time as testing time. Put your exams online, make them open book and open note. It's not going to kill rigor if you make them open book and open note. Almost everyone in the real world grabs reference materials. I don't care whether it's your mechanic, your lawyer, or your surgeon. They are looking at reference materials every day to figure out what they need to do for your car or for your case or for your body. Your students should have the ability to access their reference materials during exams too. It's also not going to kill rigor if you have your exams open for longer than 24 hours. Some of our students work, some of them have caregiving obligations. I take it to the extreme where my quizzes are open through the entire semester and my students can take it up to any point up through the last day of instruction. Some might not feel that comfortable with that. So I suggest consider opening your tests for a week. That gives students a window that they can find an hour or so to take the quiz or the test in. And then like we said, or like Adam more correctly just said, you don't have to use your class time as testing time. You can use class time to review and or to cover new material. You also want to reduce the stakes of your major papers and your tests. And this goes into scaffolding. And there are three possible ways to scaffold your assignments or your tests. One is allowing your students to drop one or two of their worst scores on exams, assignments, or quizzes. 
The second is letting students replace an earlier score with a cumulative final grade if you write a cumulative final exam. And three, replacing some of the weight of high stakes work with smaller, more frequent assessments. So instead of a midterm worth 25% of a student's grade, you break it down into five quizzes that are each worth 5%. It's the same 25%, but in much smaller chunks. Set clear expectations. How can students succeed if they have no idea what success looks like? You know, this goes back to something that we said, I believe, in this in this episode. If you don't give them a rubric, how are they supposed to know what you expect? We don't have classes in mind reading, all right? So make sure that you actually show the students, this is what an appropriate amount of work is. This is what I expect to see. Here are the main points you need to cover in your paper. Here are the things that you need to study for in order to pass my exams, okay? You can even tell them, my students do better when they prepare for class in this way. My students do better when they study for exams in this way. Try that. One of the things that I've been flogging all semester this semester, when students say, I'm having trouble with the terminology, I'm like, flashcards. Make yourself some flashcards. Flashcards are the best tool. And I've just been responding to every student who says, I'm having trouble with all these new terms. Flashcards. Go make flashcards. Use flashcards. And I've had students report back that studying is easier. But they keep forgetting that flashcards are an option because they're so used to just read and reread. So if you can set expectations, not just for what the outcome should look like, but also for how they should be doing the work, give them suggestions that will make their lives easier and make studying more effective, that's a win-win. Find out what your students are interested in and try to tailor some of your course content to what their interests are. So the way Adam and I do it is we let our students pick their own paper topics. I tell my students, Pick a social problem that you care about, dive into it, show me what you found, and then connect it to three ideas from our class. This gives them some creativity. It lets them dive into stuff that maybe they've considered for other classes and they can build on their work. And it makes the class not just a series of multiple choice questions. Our experiences with teaching inclusively, I'm a really big believer in scaffolding assignments so that my students are not overwhelmed with a paper they have one shot on without a rough draft and without brainstorming sessions available and that comes from a professor i ta for who had two tests and one paper the tests were 30 questions each and the paper was 40 percent. so any mistake on the test was one percent off the overall grade and he didn't include a rough draft he didn't include an outline he didn't include participation, so he took a lot of control away from students, even though the paper was worth almost half the grade. So I've learned that that approach didn't quite work for me. I like to build in a chance for my students to think on their own and outline, and they send it to me for a grade. We brainstorm together as a class, and then they start writing a rough draft, and I give them feedback on that rough draft. I also let my students have multiple attempts on their tests so that the stakes are reduced that way. A bad test can be averaged out. And like I mentioned earlier, my tests and my quizzes really aren't weighted heavily because I know my students do not control over the questions they face. In general, my classes, whether we meet face to face or we meet online, offer my students chances to participate, whether it's verbally or whether it's written. And it was a tough lesson for me to get comfortable with silent pauses and that silence is not a bad thing and while i may joke about it i've told my students ah the awkward silent pause has migrated from on campus to zoom 
I've learned to get comfortable with silent pauses. I'll open breakout rooms or in person, my students can talk in pairs or in small groups so that they can bounce ideas off each other rather than just looking to me for the right answer. And I've also learned to tell my students and I'm learning to tell myself to add yet when my students or when I struggle with something and learning to add that word yet goes a really long way toward fighting imposter syndrome. So adding the word yet goes a really long way toward fighting imposter syndrome, at least on my end. And I hope it shows my students compassion. I'd like to think it does. So as I've used more and more of the techniques that we're talking about, I've seen students respond positively, but I've also had to do more explaining because just giving more quizzes and assignments without explaining why you're doing it can really overwhelm students when they're used to three exams and a paper and then suddenly it's you know 15 quizzes and seven reflection papers and they're like wait what okay let them know this is so no one assignment can tank your grade that can really help them adjust to the list of assignments and quizzes in the syllabus making some of them optional like the way i set it up they've got 15 different categories of assignments that they can do but only five of those categories are required assignments. And even then, they don't have to do all of them in the category. They just have to do a certain number of the ones that are available. So that if they do have to skip one because they've got to work or they've got to take somebody to the hospital or, or they're sick, then okay, so they missed journal two. Big deal. They've got journals one, four, five, you know, one, three, four, and five. They, they could still do those. Letting them know these are the same kind of questions you'll see on the midterm. That gives them a reason to do the quizzes. Emphasizing that you're giving them practice and combating that fixed mindset with yet is absolutely crucial. And these are all things that I found work better with my students, but you gotta treat them as equals. So that's what we have for you in episode 144. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Android. We've decided to no longer publish this podcast to Spotify, so if you found us on Spotify, please take a look at Apple Podcasts or other podcast apps instead. We're hosted on Blueberry.com, and we would really appreciate it if you wrote a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 145, when we'll talk about the blame game. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learning made easier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.